This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mento LLC. Mento LLC Trade Consulting focuses on issues of duty minimization, recovery, and elimination, while also helping our clients with trade compliance issues of both the import and export nature and global cargo security. You can reach us at 978-317-3250 or email me directly at pete.mento at Mento LLC. From Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. Good morning, everyone. It is Friday, the 9th of October, 11 o'clock Washington, D.C. time. And that means it's time for trade school. Thank you for joining. Uh, I'm Pete Mento. I guess I'm the, the geek in trade school. And uh, pretty excited about today's presentation. A couple of reasons, you know, um, probably the first and the foremost is I don't work for a bunch of humorless nerds anymore. So I can say a lot of things that I probably wouldn't have said in the past, not necessarily controversial. I'm just going to take a stand on some things that I wouldn't have been allowed to in the past. And also, this is a topic that gets absolutely no love, none, no love at all, utterly and completely um, ignored. But it shouldn't be because, I mean, let's face it, we've spent all this time as a nation trying to become relevant with regards to technology, and we have, and we've invested all this time and energy into education, which creates people that are brilliant. And those brilliant people come up with amazing ideas and concepts, and then somebody just comes around and steals them. But what's the point in that? You know, it's, it's sort of like how I feel all those old blues musicians must have felt when Zeppelin put out their first four albums. And, stole all that music but today's presentation for those of you who thought you were going to come on and um you know we were going to have this export compliance discussion about eccn designations and schedule b numbers and all that crap guys i've done three trade schools on that i've done a trade school on licensing i've done a trade school on making an export compliance manual i've done a trade school on the basics of export compliance i think i did one on advanced export compliance too Today, what I wanted to do was talk about enforcement and national security and why it's become what it has and how this is going to impact and affect and change the course forever of the way that America manages their enforcement and security with regards to export compliance. Why is it that everything is getting harder? Why is it that every time we turn around, there seems to be some new rule or frustration associated with trade compliance on the export side? How has it happened that, you know, here we are um, in 2020 and you'd think that exporting would get easier and easier as nation states got closer and closer and collaboration across multinational companies became the norm. But that has not been the case. It's just been madness. So we're going to focus on that today. And when you do that, you end up talking about um, some geopolitical issues between China and the United States. So you're just going to have to bear with me, guys, when we get into that. It's not always going to be comfortable to talk about, but, you know, like my grandfather used to say, it is what it is. So um, without further ado, I guess, let's just get into it um, and I can start to talk about things that are making me nuts with regards to this. People think that everything that's going on between the U.S. and China is new. It is not. And we have to keep in mind that you're going to have a very difficult time coming up with a nation state, coming up with an important country that's a global trader that did not at some point steal intellectual property. The United States of America very much so stole intellectual property. We stole it from the Europeans and we sold it to them. We made it with cheap labor and we exported it to them with a very, very good merchant marine. Sound familiar? Sorry, I have to drink about a gallon of cold brew a morning now to keep my energy level up because I'm getting old, kids. Old Uncle Pete's getting old. But it goes way back. And, uh, you know, thanks for the folks at American Shipper for this great graphic. But in February of 1784 is when we really start our, our journey with the Chinese and normalizing our relationships. But it, it becomes incredible in the 1800s. And the reason for that is because America ends up becoming this industrial giant. And China's always had a very large population. You put those two things together, you know, it's, it's going to create something special. 
when steam replaces sales on vessels, America really comes into its own in shipbuilding. Um, our merchant marine becomes positively ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's all around the world. And things really don't get too crazy until 1949 and the 1950s. You know, the, the move between what had been primarily a, you know, you really can't call it a, uh, a republic or a democracy. It had always been an imperial reign to what's happening now, which is a, a communist pseudo-state, pseudo-economy in the 2020s, begins to happen. And America very much takes a side. Very, very much we decide to take a side, um, which probably comes as no shock to anybody. And, um, you know, in doing so, it creates even more isolation. It creates... Um, uh, an attitude amongst other nation states around the world that if America is going to put these guys in the penalty box, maybe we ought to as well. And for a very long time, there's a trade embargo on goods coming in from China because of their communist leanings. It really changes, of course, through the Nixon administration, but becomes much more important when you begin to look at what goes on in um, you know, the early 1990s when China becomes... Uh, becomes a most favored nation, and they end up having this financial crisis in Asia. Uh, some people thought that it was more of a, a top-heavy toppling, but in reality, it was just decades of comeuppance. So, you know, the, the trade between these two countries have been fantastic, but when we allowed them to start importing textiles, low-rim manufacturing goods, home goods, it really blows up. A lot of people got very wealthy very quick. Then the financial crisis happens between 2000 and 2010. But oddly enough, China is not as negatively affected as the United States. They're still shipping their products around the world. They're still able to control the levers of their economy to keep it stable. And we find ourselves where we are now. Now, something important happens. Let me see if my cursor works here. Between the 1970s and 2018. And that's that China as a nation makes the decision that they have to be both autonomous they have to have sovereignty over their manufacturing process and that they want to become an extremely important part of the global economy. But they also realize that they have not invested as much into innovation and are going to have to, in one form or another, procure it. And if that means they procure it through buying companies, if they procure it through sponsoring research, if they procure it through a number of ways, but um, allegedly, we always have to say that, allegedly, a great deal of the procuring of this intelligence and, and innovation was done through just good old-fashioned intellectual property theft. That should really come as no surprise, folks. Um, we've been talking a lot about it, and the press is just ripe with stories about everything from academics who've given incredible research over to the Chinese to uh, military technology being stolen through cyber. Uh, but that's really where we are today. So when we, we move on to the, you know, the next slide here, we find ourselves in an interesting grip because the Federal Bureau of Investigation has been monitoring and following theft cases involving China, and they've, they've exploded. What I want you to really keep in mind when we take a look at this particular um, slide, on the left-hand side in that particular graphic, between 2018 and 2020, this was when the trade war started. And the whole point of the trade war... <laughs> was to stop IP theft. But as you can see, IP theft was actually on the rise throughout those years. And it continues to be through the rise. And IP theft is a major problem for the American economy. You know, $300 billion in estimated losses, $1.7 trillion in global value and counterfeited goods. And for those of you who don't enjoy doing these kinds of numbers, that is, um, you know, the, the estimated value of American intellectual property is $5 trillion. And that is a determination based on future value and its impact on local markets. But how does it affect our economy? Um, you know, it's about the, the industries that make up this particular area. 38% of GDP, 52% of what we, we really export in merchandise, 27.9 million jobs and about 46% of wage premiums are involved in the export of products that are high end with regards to IP. So... Um, you know, the cost economy is massive and billions and billions and billions of dollars. It's a real issue. And this was the reason for the trade war. 
It's also the reason that the DDTC and BIS are positively shining a flashlight up your nose, trying to figure out and understand what it is you're exporting, who it's going to, and what they plan on using it for. And let's, I mean, let's just boil it down to the simplest possible way to understand this. You have a great export program if you're able to understand and very confident that you know what you're exporting and whether or not it is uh, dangerous from a technical standpoint, who you're shipping it to, who you're really shipping it to. Is it being trans-shipped? Is it going to be shipped to someone to be resold? And then what they plan on doing with it. Some of the simplest products can end up becoming very, very dangerous. And it's not just products, guys. It's also data. I love, love, love using this particular uh, metaphor, particularly because it made an old boss of mine so angry because he didn't understand how it applied to export compliance. But, you know, go figure. Um, I had a date. I was going to make jambalaya for this date. And I called my mother in Texas who walked me through it. So the first phone call was, here are the different products that you need, the different uh, ingredients that you need to make jambalaya. Go out and get them. Here's how much you need. So she basically told me the recipe over the phone. And then when I came back home, she walked me through all the different things I needed to do to make, you know, the family secret recipe jambalaya. If I had been in London rather than in Manchester, she would have been instructing me on how to do something I didn't know across a border. And for the, the slow folks in the audience, um, the metaphor here is making jambalaya or making sarin gas or making an explosive or coming up with a satellite system. They're very similar. They're very, very similar in that it's just an idea that you didn't have that was given to you. And if you do that across a border, that thought or that idea is an export. We are, we are always going to be concerned about the exportation of dangerous products of technology that we're trying to control. But we're very, very concerned these days with the very DNA of what makes our economy so special, which are these ideas, this technology being exported and not knowing where it came from, who it's going to, and if it ends up in the hands of somebody who wants to harm us or wants to harm our economy, being able to backtrack and understand how it got there. You know, so hopefully that helps you guys to get your head around it. The Chinese are using a number of different tools in order to get this technology. One of the oldest ways, of course, was using the joint venture program. So let's say you or I have come up with this brilliant new product. And not only do we want to manufacture it in China because of the low cost of labor and the fantastic logistics infrastructure, we also want to sell it in one of the most populous nations on the planet with a vastly quickly growing economy. But we would need to open up our manufacturing site there in China and a joint venture with a Chinese company. And the way it worked was that Chinese company would have access to our technology and access to our manufacturing programs and would begin to understand how it is we make our product. The understanding was that they would not just blindly steal these ideas, but in reality and in practice, they did. So that was one of the most common ways. But at the same time, their intelligence services... The, the Chinese um, intelligence agencies were stealing ideas constantly. And they weren't just stealing ideas for military, um, military purposes. They were also stealing ideas for manufacturing that they knew could become key industries for the Chinese or could become crippling to the American economy if they made them before we did and co-opted us. There was a tremendous amount of investment that was done in trying to buy American companies that were on the cusp of certain technologies. One of the biggest, of course, was um, alternative fuels and energy. They were very big on that for a while. We'll get into the talent recruitment programs in a little bit, but what China has realized is the best way to have access to great ideas is to get those brains that come up with those ideas working with them. So research partnerships, academic collaboration, sending Chinese scientists to America and vice versa, and then making sure that whatever comes out of that collaboration remains in country. Or, you know, here's a great example. If a, if a Chinese scientist comes to America to get a PhD, they don't forget everything that they came across when they go home. You know, that's the point of learning. And I know it sounds a little spy novelly, but to place someone in a proper situation to be privy to and to be exposed to very, um, you know, very important American technology so that they can bring that back home, that is downright scary. 
any way you slice it. You know, it's scary and it's problematic. Um, you know, front companies setting up fake companies in the United States and abroad to purchase products. Um, and these companies appear to be clean and not an issue. And they purchase the product and they, they back engineer it. Setting up front companies to buy things in one country and then that front company will re-export it to China when that technology would not be allowed to go to China otherwise. And then, of course, you know, mergers and acquisitions. Strategically looking for a company who has a type of technology that the Chinese want and going out and acquiring it. Um, the legal and regulatory is, is pretty complicated, but to put it simply, not allowing certain technology to come into the country for manufacturing purposes or development without some sort of an agreement that it could stay there. Um, or ha having to back engineer something by taking it apart in order to live up to a regulatory requirement. So this is no joke. I mean, this is some real thought that was put into this. And when it comes to breaking down our economy, it's just easier, right? You know, you um, if I want to come up and become an incredible pharmaceutical company, I have to hire scientists. I have to create a secure building. I have to put that research under lock and key. I've got to make sure that everyone that works for me and everything that they make create is safe and secure. If I want to steal it, I just try to get one person in and steal it. You know, everyone else is trying to do their job, but I've got some guy hired as a janitor who goes through paperwork at night when no one's paying attention. And um, someone who knows what they're doing, who looks like a, a seemingly innocuous person, who's planting technology bugs all throughout the operation in order to get information back to China. So it, it is that, that sinister, unfortunately. I hate that it is, but it is. Former FDI, FBI Director Christopher Ray really says it best. You know, these are systemic, expansive, and well-funded operations. It's one thing when, you know, you or I has our credit card hacked by some toothless hillbilly or... Um, you know, we, we end up being being compromised financially when someone gets our bank information because of something that someone found in the trash. That's one or two people working together, doing what they can to hurt, you know, as many people as they can touch. But where the Chinese are involved in American IP theft is very different because it is being done with a system. So they are purposely walking through and thinking through the different things that they need to do in order to be successful. They understand when there is a breakdown in how they're doing it, how to find a new way to do it, how to stop pursuing technology and ideas in one way and now do it in another because that way is no longer viable. It's expansive in that they pick an entire industry, like an entire industry, like aerospace or um, you know weapons, whatever the case may be. They pick an entire industry and they go after it, if not an entire nation or an entire area of academic research. And it's incredibly well-funded. You think that there's anybody in the Chinese government who's you know, asking for um, a PO to do some, some hacking? It's just taken care of. Their economy is very different. How they run their government is very different. So it gives them a tremendous amount more agility. And you can hate this all you want, but, you know, got to tip my hat to them. Stealing all these ideas is a lot faster way to get where you want to be. And especially if you can get away with it. And that is where the conversation gets a little uncomfortable and prickly for everyone. Because it doesn't matter what your, your stripe is politically. For decades, amongst various different executives in the White House, regardless of party, we let them get away with it. And this probably started in earnest during the Reagan administration and has gone all the way up until now. And so we started a trade war to try to do something about it. But as you saw a couple of slides ago, the trade war in and of itself has not stopped the theft. So you as a representative of a company, whether you're moving product for a logistics firm or whether you're manufacturing products and ideas for the consumption of your clients and customers, you have to be the vanguard. You've got to be the people who are watching because one company if you really are watching the back door, can effectively stop what's going on. Now, if they want it bad enough, they can send wave after wave of attacks, but that's just going to be way too obvious. And frankly, they don't want that kind of heat. But if you're running a locked up operation, 
you don't have to worry about this kind of stuff. And if you have a great export compliance program, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. If you don't, you very much do need to worry about this kind of stuff. This one um, really got underneath my skin, this idea of the thousand talents plan. Okay, so if you've ever watched anything about cults, you notice that it always looks so bright and cheery and self-helpy up front, but it's very sinister behind it. This thousand talents plan, you know, it was about recruiting the best talent and cultivating relationships across different uh, geographies and doing the best thing you know, for our country and its security in China. But what it really was doing for the most part was was luring talent back to China. And it didn't just do it in the way like, you know, we're not we're, they're not going on Indeed or on LinkedIn and, and putting up ads. A lot of times they were they were using Chinese intelligence operatives to go out and find people, particularly in academic situations and have them sign on by either compromising that person and putting them in a place where they were worried that their ethics, morality, or social standing could be brought into question, or just good old-fashioned greed. For those of you who have not had the benefit of going through an interrogation course, one of the best parts about interrogation courses is when they teach you about the MICE protocol. MICE, M-I-C-E. So Mike, India, Charlie, Echo. MICE. You can get anything you want out of anyone if you, um, if you, if you put forth something that they want or need and create a relationship based on the MICE principle. Money is M, ideology is I, coercion is C, and ego is E. So money, you are a brilliant chemist at Harvard University. You, um, however, as a tenured professor, are only making about $150,000 a year. And the um, Chinese intelligence service says, hey, you know what? You're working on some interesting things there. What if, you know, every once in a while we get some research on this thing or that thing or the other thing? Or you give us access to certain servers. And, you know, there might be a couple million bucks waiting for you. It doesn't even take that much, by the way. It takes a lot less than a million dollars in most cases. But there's going to be a big old pile of cash in an offshore bank for you. Don't even worry about it. We'll give you the numbers. You can check it out. But, uh, you know, the money will just show up. Got nothing to worry about. So that's money. Ideology is finding people who no longer believe in the same things that they've believed in their whole lives or that um, bond with you. Now, this is where it gets interesting, particularly amongst academics. Most American universities are, are just dyed-in-the-wool liberal now. <clears throat> when I went to Harvard, when I went to Harvard... I had a friend of mine, and he and I started a club called um, PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Republicans, because there was probably one conservative for every 500 bleeding heart left wing. I mean, this is way back before socialism was cool. Socialists. Um, so you have a breeding ground in academia of people who generally, from an ideological standpoint, see some kind of, of golden path with regards to socialism, communism, the idea that capitalism has failed them. So using ideology to get someone to, to turn. Coercion. Now, coercion's ugly because it only works one time, really. You know, you can only make it work so much. But coercion is, give me what I want or I'm going to hurt you, you know. If you don't tell me what I need to know, we're going to kill you, we're going to break your legs, we're going to steal your kids, whatever the case may be. Or, or blackmail, we're going to release information about you know how you plagiarized on um, your your doctoral dissertation and how you didn't really do that research and it's going to ruin you in the eyes of the academic community believe it or not that in and of itself is usually enough to get someone to change and then the last one is ego a lot of you are here on trade school because we're friends because in you know some some dimly lit New Orleans bar room, we decided that we liked the jokes each other told and we have a good time together and, and now we're buddies. Or you were in a bind one time and I knew somebody who knew somebody and we got, got it taken care of. So it's ego. I like you, you like me. But at the same time, this is also the art of seduction when it comes to you know intelligence and counterintelligence. This is just getting someone to do what you want them to do by making them like you. And that can be anything from... Um, you know, just having a good friend who is already a member of this organization who lures someone into it 
to you know the James Bondy kind of stuff about you know the uh, the honeypots and the canaries and getting someone to to betray their country because of a, of a romantic relationship, but it can also just be that two people have an affinity for one another and they end up sharing information because of it. Watch yourself today when you're talking to your friends how easily you slip into giving information that you shouldn't about your life, and you know ask yourself if the two of you weren't friends anymore. How comfortable you would be with that information being in the hands of someone who would who would look to harm you. So the Thousands Towns Planet is much more sinister and bigger, I think, than anyone realizes. And this all comes on the heels of what is a, a historic moment for China, one for a very good reason, one for a very bad one. We'll go for the bad one first. I'm one of a small number of economists that believes that China is is probably, you know. It's going to take a little while for China to overcome what's happened with this coronavirus and that there are a number of pressures that they're not used to that are going to make it even harder. I think also that there are some political motivations that may make it difficult for people to necessarily go rushing back. Let's face it. There are certain things that we make in China all the time that it's just the best place to make it, the best way to make it. Um, But at the same time, in the good news side of things for China, they made an investment in this idea called Made in China 2025 or just China 2025. And it's the four advantages in the 10 key sectors. So they want to maintain a healthy and robust market where people are becoming more engaged in the consumer culture. They are a middle, middle class culture. Um, you know, they're going from subsistence farming into the next generation of people who are working and managing manufacturing into the next generation of people who are involved in design and you know the intelligence side of it into distribution logistics all those other things that come along with it they believe they have the right enterprises so china wants to make sure that by 2025 they have all the necessary businesses that they could possibly need to be on their own you know it's really what these two things come to they believe they have the right strategy and they want to have the right people and there are 10 key sectors that they they believe that they really need to have um a stronghold in in order to be successful. So information technology, um, the robotics, aerospace, high-tech shipping. This one really blew me away. Shipping and, and moving cargo is, you know, when I went to the Merchant Marine Academy in, in Maine in 1989, oh my gosh, um, ships today do not look that much different than ships did then. The electronics on board many of the systems on board may look different but the idea of how we move cargo over oceans has not changed dramatically that's beginning to change and china wants to be in the vanguard of that as well high-speed rail um, anything that they can do in order to get more out of the energy they already have hybrid materials medical devices agriculture and then power equipment think about this as everything from power engineering and power manufacturing to how they move power across a country the size of China and trying to do it. So they want to be able to do those 10 things and do them better or as well as the best country in the world and have absolutely zero reliance or zero dependence on any other nation. I don't know of another country who has made that decision. Now, if we decided to do it here, I think politically, whoever decided to bring that up would be burned at the stake in Washington. But China's saying they don't want to have to worry about anyone turning off the switch on them. And it also allows them to sit back and say, we don't need anyone else. And it gives them a tremendous amount more power when it comes to negotiating trade agreements and and basically pushing their agenda around the world. Where they've got a real problem is that there appears to be a debt crisis that's on the on, on the come up with regards to China. And it's really, folks, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. There are too many people who have borrowed too much money and faced bad times, and this, this virus has not helped, <clears throat> where they've been unable to maintain their economic foothold, and they've had to borrow more money here, borrow more money there. Before you know it, they're, you know, they're ostensibly in, engaged in a business where most of what they're doing is, is being... Um, you know, it's being funded by debt. The fact is that China is in a different place than the United States. There's a lot that they could do 
to try to manage this debt and to try to manage their way in and out of it, the tools that they have, the things that they have on, uh, you know, at their fingertips to, to actually manage debt. But will they do it and are they likely to do it? And do they have the backbone to do it, knowing what it would mean for the long-term success? Sometimes things have to fail. And once they fail, the strong things pick up and gobble up what's left of the small ones and you have something better. That's, um, you know, a pretty ugly way of looking at economics and Darwinism, but it's worked for the world for centuries. And China is going to have to make a decision about how they deal with borrowing and these companies that maybe were nothing more than a company on the margin and what they do going forward. Now, China is also a centrally controlled communist government. We can never forget that. So their ability to leverage and their ability to manipulate their markets is vastly different than the United States. And also their leaders don't have to worry about ever being reelected. They just kind of do, do what they want to do and let the chips fall where they may because what are you, you going to complain about it and you know, end up spending the next 20 years making big rocks into little rocks? Well, you can tell I don't have to worry about talking anymore and saying what I want to say. Uh, so how it can go from bad to dead, you know, that all being said with the Chinese economy, there's going to be some, some desperation over the course of the next couple of years to get better information, to have access to great technology. And we see it in the news all the time, don't we? Right. So all these companies that have had embargoes slapped on them and that they've been told they can't import or export their goods into the U S that is a death sentence. Because where the U.S. goes, generally the rest of the West goes as well. And, you know, your company could find itself on the wrong end of the law if you don't just do some simple things right. Is your, is your senior management committed to doing the right thing? One of the first things I look at whenever I get a compliance manual is I open to the very first page. If I don't see a letter signed by the chief executive and the one who's there now, so if it's a 20-year-old compliance manual, and the CEO is, you know, from three CEOs ago. I better see the most recent CEO's signature on a letter that says, you know, we here at XYZ Company, we take compliance seriously. We understand our responsibility to export compliance and export controls. And I personally am saying right up front that I'm going to back and support and, and I'm committed to doing whatever it takes to maintain the highest levels of export compliance. You don't want to do that? You're going to have a hard time mitigating fines and penalties when they get ugly enough. Do you really follow up on things? The, the dreaded sales weasels are the ones who have the best access to information, not only about your customers, but about what your customers do. And if something doesn't feel right, do they raise the red flag? Or are they more concerned about closing a piece of business? We've all been there. Or maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never been in a, sale, a sales job or a business development job. All you want is the close. You know, you're you're just you you catch yourself saying whatever you got to say in order to get it, and saying I'll, I'll I'll make it work if we just get this customer on board. Bad attitude. You know, you're setting yourself up for failure. If something comes up in the sales process that makes someone feel uncomfortable, they should be mentioning that to someone in trade compliance. They rarely ever do. When the when BIS, DDTC, Customs, Census, when anyone on the export side from law enforcement asks for information. Are you knowingly being lazy, incomplete, inaccurate? Are you not telling the whole truth? Are you hiding things? Or when, you know, when the ferryman comes for his gold coin, do you give it to him? If you've been asked for information by the government, you know, the best thing to do is talk to your lawyer and then tell him the truth. Just tell him the truth. It's always the cover-up that ruins a company. You know, if you're in a situation where you've got to hide from the truth when the government's involved, you're in bigger trouble than you realize. You know, this is this is a much bigger deal than than whatever just happened. If you're in a situation where you've got to lie to the government in order to keep your business afloat, man, you got bigger problems. Tell the truth, be accurate and be complete. Not being honest is one thing. And then also not getting information back when, when required. If you've been told not to do something again, doing it again. And you want to feel about being, okay, so typical Pete Mento moment. So I had a taillight out when I was in graduate school and I drove the same way home every day and I got pulled over 
by a police officer in Somerville. And I said, yeah, I'm going to take care of it. I got an appointment next week. Well, did I? No, of course not. I just wanted to go home. I wanted to have about six beers and forget that every penny I made went to graduate school. So I, I, I'm driving home a week later. This cop pulls me over. Same police officer. Same person. And I just sit there like a absolute idiot. When he says, so uh, about that taillight. Yeah. And he asked me, he said, did you really have an appointment? I said, no, I didn't. And he said, okay. This is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a ticket instead of you know, absolutely bringing you up for everything I could right now. But if I see that car again without a back taillight, taken care of, you are going to rue the day you got a driver's license. Next day, I took care of it. You know, most most people wouldn't have given me a second chance like that. Um, but when you're asked to do something, do you do it? When you're told never to do anything ever again. Can you show that you, you, you can document that you made the decision, you made the choice as a company not to do that stupid thing again? Here, here, <laughs> here's the two bad ones. These are the ones where, where if I'm engaged by a client to do export work, when these two things happen, that's you know when I look at where I was going to go for vacation and I say, you know what? Instead of going to South Carolina to go fishing, I think we're going to go to Maui because this is about to get very expensive for somebody. If I come across any any proof that you are hiding or trying to get around the law in order to do what your customers wanted or what you wanted to do internally. So if I find any proof or evidence that you were trying to pull it over on the government, oh, it's going to be a bad day. And then also if during the investigation that the government is doing, they come across, you know, you, you, you keep doing dumb things. So other violations occur. And the difference with export and import, there's, there's a lot of them, but one of the big ones that, that always got my attention is, you know, these guys are, they're not like Customs. Customs wants to see you succeed. The guys at BIS and DDTC, man, they're, you're a perp. You're a perp. They want to smack your head on the side of the cop car as they shove your head in there. They want your name and your face in the papers. They want your company's name drugged through the mud. These people see the job that they have to do as the very basis of national security. And they ought to. I mean, we would. that's the whole point of this presentation, right? The whole point of this presentation is that these guys, these women and men, are trying to keep our nation and our economy safe from people stealing ideas or using our ideas against us. And they take it very seriously. So when you decide that you're not going to take it seriously or you're going to circumvent the law or you're going to do whatever stupid thing it was you were going to do, they're going to come down on you like a tr dump truck full of bricks. And the guy who's driving, it's got a sledgehammer and he just had a fight with his wife before he went to work. Don't be that guy. Just don't. The penalties are positively revolting. They're ridiculous. And remember that usually if you're screwing up with one government agency, you could be screwing up with other ones. And usually people are, are making mistakes, and when they do uh, make these mistakes, they're systematic. So these are um, just a couple to keep in mind. So export administration regulations, a company can be fined up to a million dollars, but individuals can have up to a quarter of a million and 10 years in prison. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys all that, that you're all going to jail because that's, that's pretty rare. But, but if the government has a criminal case against you, and if the government is saying, there's a pretty good chance that we could just throw your butt in jail. They have enough already. If the government is going to take you to court, they have enough to convict you. These guys, these guys, when it comes to export enforcement, they don't lose. I mean, even Perry Mason lost every once in a while. These folks do not lose. On the um, on the uh, the uh, on the ITAR regulations for the international traffic and arms regulations, just as ugly. But you know, for individuals, give it to a million dollars. And a lot of things don't appear to be to the naked eye, to you or I, you know, to anyone who's just in, in simple business. They don't appear to be engaged or involved in the military, but they are. They were manufactured for military end use. Then Office of Foreign Asset Control, these dudes, these are all for criminal, by the way. So this is knowing violations. I'm more afraid of OFAC than, than I am of my, my ex-wife's uh, attorney, right? Like, I, I am terrified of the Office of Foreign Asset Control. These folks are the people that shut down your bank account, take all your money, and say, now go home in the dark and starve. There is no chill in these people. Absolutely none. So beyond the sanctions and those, those penalties, 
You know, these guys can take the money to your accounts, freeze your assets. Civil ones are not as bad, but they what ends up happening is they end up stacking. So if you made an incorrect submission on um, on an EEI to the government, there's that $12,000 violation. Well, you've probably done it 100 times this year. So start doing that math. And then individuals can be hit with every 12 grand for every one of those they made a mistake on. And, you know, it's the same thing with the IRS. Financial penalties of a half a million dollars you know, uh, on ITAR, 12,000 per violation. And as I said, if you're making a mistake once, you're probably making that mistake all the time. These, these tend to, um, these tend to get pretty ugly pretty quick. So the real, the real trigger right now is this idea of, of national security, where the government is really looking at areas where something that you've done, something your company's done, something one of your customers has done is going to trigger they're, they're intended to go up because they believe that these actions are going to have a negative effect on American security. So Temp Periscope is a Chinese hacking group, and they are um, deeply backed by the Chinese Communist Party. I'm not even going to say allegedly on that one, folks, okay? But this is a, a Communist Party-backed Chinese hacking group. They've stolen plans to make anti-ship missiles, to plans that were on American submarines. It's a highly regarded technology. If you've never seen an American submarine, they're things of beauty, technology, stealth, and science. And we're very good at what we do with them because we've just had decades to refine everything. And for someone to steal, um, you know, t missile technology and, and anti-ship anti missile technology um, from us with regards to that would be a major coup for anyone who was looking to fight a war with us. They are spending tons and tons and tons of dollars to get to data, to be able to breach um, different types of systems because that would cost a lot of money to U.S. taxpayers. And I think what we should really be concerned with, though, is that the theft of these ideas, not only does it put our, our warfighter in a deteriorated position, but it also makes it harder for them to have the advantage and to win. Um, if you've never been in a fight, and, I mean, I'm talking to a bunch of trade nerds here, so probably haven't but if you've never been in a fight there is no fighting fair you know there's none of these um i forget what's called the 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 old boxing rules the duke of whatever rules you know there's no no sand throwing and no 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 poking eyes or anything if you're in a fight you're in a fight and having every advantage is something that you want to have and you know when i look at the people that we support in the military with logistics and the things that we do I want them to have an overwhelming ability to just overwhelm in a superior way anyone that's messing with our country. And the idea that, that technology drives that ability now. You know, we're not Vikings. It's not whoever's got the biggest, strongest, well-fed dude that can swing an axe is going to probably win the fight. No, Sarah has the smartest, best technology. Have the fight quick, keep people out of danger, and overwhelm them with a massive amount of force so they know not to do it again. And by stealing this technology, it puts us in a bad place. When you look at weapons technology, I love this picture so much. I might blow it up and put it on my wall. <laughs> um, we know going back 400,000 years before Christ was born that human beings used pointy sticks. So before the Bronze Age, before steel, um, you know, these people would, would whittle down a stick until it was pointy enough to stab something with it. And then over time, of course, we get stronger and stronger with the ideas that we have. But in every one of these instances, there's sociological proof and historical proof of theft. Gunpowder was a stolen technology. The Colt revolver, it wasn't long before other people started stealing it. You know, the ability for, for a, um, a Texas Ranger or a cowboy to fight on horseback with a repetitive handgun while still riding was what won the West. If you read any book about what won the West, that's what won the West. Well, that and a complete disregard for ethics or, or the law. Uh, the machine gun, you know, the idea of repetitive rifles. They go, the Pickler gun was way before 1851, but this idea of, you know, repetitive rifles, um, Gatling guns and, and, and high-velocity, high-potency weapons, also stolen. Everything about American shipping and German and English and British, all that technology stolen. 
You know, it was one thing to sink a ship. It was another to capture it, see how it was made, have a, um, a naval architect go through it and steal it. Tanks. Tanks were constantly being stolen with the technology. And then so on and so on and so on. I mean, the nuclear bomb, you had the Rosenbergs, right? So you had American technology that created and established the nuclear age stolen by most of our adversaries. And now you've got all kinds of different nations and the opportunity for a rogue state to take these these weapons and steal them and, and use them against us. Now we look at drones. Um, you know, in a modern warfare context, the idea that that a, a small group of American soldiers can have, at a moment's notice, overhead aerial intelligence of what's going on around them is incredible. And we use drones all the time because it allows us to bring the fight to the enemy without putting a person in necessarily in harm's way. Not physically, at least. I'm sure it does something to them mentally. And that technology, that drone technology, is constantly being stolen by our enemies. There are drones in China right now that look exactly like their American counterparts because they were, I'm willing to bet, designed and built on stolen technology. So as much as these computers are great, it's easy to steal them as well. Biological weapons are the ones that scare me the most. Um, I'm probably, I'm not going to be able to to dine out much more longer on, on you know, calling what happened with COVID here. But the, the reason I knew so much about pandemics was because I've been more fearful about a biological weapon release than I have about nuclear weapons, about a dirty bomb in a port, about hijacking aircraft. The manufacture of a biological agent is not as difficult as it sounds. So, you know, choosing which one to use, that's actually pretty complicated. You know, do you plan on making something that lingers? Do you just want to hurt people right now? Um, and then, you know, acquiring the agents and the things necessary to actually produce it. That's a little difficult. Um, but after that, stabilizing it, it's getting easier and easier to do. Concentrating it, that's just a chemical process. Choosing a delivery method, I mean, aerosol is probably the most common, but testing it on someone, then putting it in mass production and stockpiling it. You know, that's how a government does it. But there's a lot of steps here that you're able to skip if you're a rogue state or just a bad actor. And we've seen what COVID did to the U.S. economy. And honestly, guys, it, you know, I, I don't see any evidence of it being systematically released in different geographies in the U.S. I don't think anyone has. But imagine if someone had bothered to do that. Imagine if they picked 20 American cities to release it in at the same time it would completely destabilize our government. You saw what happened with COVID. So um, a lot of what goes into biological, um, a lot of what goes into the biological side of weapons making, unfortunately, can be easily acquired through rogue exporting. Everything from the materials necessary, excuse me, to make these products, all the way through the, um, the necessary um, scientific uh, materials to contain it, to concentrate it. And then, of course, how you plan on deploying it can also be purchased as well. Robotics and the use of autonomous weaponry in um, in what's going on in, uh, in warfare. In America, it's massive. So this is something that we have dumped a ton of money into, as has China, as has Russia and the former Soviet Union. We truly believe that in the course of the next 50 to 100 years, a significant amount of the warfare that is done between countries will be done by, you know, by non-autonomous robots. And that there is a tremendous amount of money, time and energy, and some of the greatest minds in the world are working on weaponizing automation. So weaponizing robots. And it's only a matter of time before we see something like this in the field. Just look at predator drones. Look at the many drones now that can work on station, fly themselves, and then launch when given directives by an individual thousands of miles away. It's not that far off. And there are a ton of videos, for those of you who have nothing to do this weekend, that you can watch about these automated war machines and how they work. While that's going on, there's also a lot of work being done to try to find new and intelligent ways to manage data transfer and manage you know, the ideas that we have, and crypto is one of the big ones, and using blockchain. So do not be surprised if you begin to see high-end American technology, if it's, it's, it's going to be required to be moved across borders 
from one secure person to another using blockchain. I think that that is something that will probably see its day in Congress. And at some point you will probably see in the hands of someone like the BIS or DDTC in order to ensure compliance and security. So with that, I have around 10 minutes left to answer your questions. I don't know if we have any today. Um, and then I'll do my wrap up so I can let you guys know um, the last couple things I wanted to talk about today. But I don't know if we had any questions come in, Cindy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, technology transfers are extremely hard to keep compliant. Let's not kid ourselves. So what you need to do is come up with ways to compartmentalize information and only keep parts of it that are necessary in the hands of the people who need to have information to it. And it's also a great idea to keep these, you know, on, on uh, what they call it, air-blocked servers where information of that type is only in certain places and cannot be shared across systems because then you're going to know how it got to where it got and who got it there. So um, that's probably the best way to do it. Also, just knowing where people come from. Um, I know in 2020, it's not a... It's not a kind thing to ask someone if they're an American citizen, but when it comes to export compliance, we kind of have to throw kindness out the window because being thrown in prison is not very kind either. Any other questions before I wrap it up? Okay. All right. So, you know, here's the last thing I want to say before I close today out with regards to this topic. If you think that Western countries do not engage in the same type of clandestine theft you are out of your mind if you think that we are not also as a nation state involved and engaged in the theft of these ideas you're crazy spies have been spies and intelligence services have been intelligence services since the dawn of time and there are people in companies that are just as involved with industrial um, espionage as countries are you need to realize that not everyone should or can be trusted and keeping control of these ideas is what's going to keep our government and our recovery and the opportunities that we have as a nation on track. Do what you can. Be smart about it. And this is one of those areas where, I hate to say it, guys, you got to be a tiny bit paranoid if we expect to be successful. So this is one of the places where paranoia is actually going to pay off for you. If you ever need anything, if there's anything I can do to help you with this, please just reach out or give me a call. I'm always here. I'm always here for you. You know that. Um, just don't call too late at night and ask me to bail you out of jail. might put me in a mood. But I appreciate you all coming on Trade School. Um, hit up the Trade Geek podcast. I'm probably going to put this up there pretty soon. And again, thank you so much for joining us again on Trade School. Have a great weekend.